Hello, my name is Tom Abbott of the University of Warwick. I'm joined today by Manera Mirza. Um, Manera has written and broadcast extensively on the arts in the UK. Um, at the moment, many would argue that the arts in the UK are currently experiencing a golden age, but you've argued that actually this picture is not all that rosy, and that in fact the current artistic environment and official policy is not necessarily just ineffective but may actually be causing long-term damage to the arts scene in the UK. Why do you say that? There's been a, a great amount of funding and support politically for the arts sector but lots of that funding has become increasingly tied to fulfilling social objectives. So it's no longer the case that the arts are funded as a good thing in and of themselves, but that the arts now have to prove their worth um, by um, achieving or delivering targets in, say, healthcare or in education or in regeneration. Um, and I think what's happened is that there is a, an increasing loss of confidence in the arts to say, well, actually, we provide something worthwhile to society. And, and what you get instead is a kind of... Um, instrumentalism where, where the arts can only be justified in, in social policy terms and, and, and I think what this has led to um, when the, the real damage to the arts is that um, they've become increasingly politicised you know, the, the, the way in which politicians now intervene in the arts sector is so much more intrusive than ever before it's really unprecedented the degree to which um, uh, sort of civil servants, politicians actually tell artists and arts organisations what to produce The arts have always had um, a role in social policy and a role in our culture beyond just the artistic. Um, why is it wrong that we should place such an emphasis on that? I think it's true that there has always been a political impulse behind arts policy. Um, so, for instance, in the 19th century, museums were seen as a way of civilising the masses, of um, quelling potential social unrest um, and so on. I think what's happened today is that that's much more explicit. Um, there is no even, not even a pretense to say that the arts have some value in themselves. Um, and the, the, the kind of the, the arm's length principle, which had formerly governed institutions like the Arts Council, and this was a principle that um, the Arts Council would make funding decisions autonomously without government interference, that that arm's length principle has effectively been um, di diminished now. It doesn't really exist. Um, and I think that's, that's widely recognised by people working in the sector. So there is a kind of uh, an explicit statement that the arts need to fulfil these, these political purposes. I think the, the other change is that not only is it more explicit, but that the, the original use of the arts for political purposes um, was predicated on the idea that you did it through the arts themselves. So you would civilise people by making them go to the National Gallery or the British Museum. But the, the, the whole process was based on the idea that they would look at the paintings themselves, they would look at the objects, and that that would be um, the thing that would lift them and elevate them and make them kind of good, ordinary citizens. Today, the actual cultural object itself is seen as a sort of irrelevance to the, to the process. The important thing seems to be today to get people through the door. Um, so so in, the, in the art sector, in museums and galleries, for instance, there's a real preoccupation with number crunching. You know, how many working class people did you get this year? You know, how many black or ethnic minority people? And in a way, the question that's being asked is not what experience did they have? Um, you know, did it, you know, did they enjoy it even? But did you get the right numbers through through the door? Um, and I think that the, the, the sort of the evacuation of culture itself from the cultural sector 
is, is you know, has been one of the, the effects of this. Is that part of the problem, though, that we're kind of defining these things as a sector? Certainly in the late 1990s, this notion of the cultural industries became very popular. Does that actually complicate things when thinking about how we interact with the arts? Yeah, I think that it's interesting in the, the 1980s and 1990s that you're right, that there was a, um, a reposing of what culture and what the arts were. Um, and this idea that we had to value the arts in economic terms. So you had lots of research studies um, looking at the economic impacts of the arts in cities or the economic impact, say, of um, an arts festival. So there was lots of research done, for instance, in Glasgow on the, the, the City of Culture mm. scheme that was, that was put in place there. Um, and what you had was a, a kind of an idea that the arts were... Um, were almost a kind of booster to the economy um, and that the creative industries were something special, something different. They weren't like ordinary industry because they were more creative. They had this kind of buzz about them. Um, The reality, actually, is very different in that the creative industries, um, as as they're described, does have an economic impact, but that's not the same as a subsidised arts and cultural sector. And um, very often, quite conveniently, you might say, in government discourse, um, they, t- they try and conflate the two. And in fact, what becomes the creative industries is not just museums and galleries or the kind of what you'd imagine is the, the you know, creativity, but it actually includes media. So that includes software production, you know, computer companies that produce you know, Microsoft Word, or, for instance, whatever like that, um, tourism. So, for instance, you know, someone working in a theme park or someone um, working in, in, in sort of the hotel industry, in some definitions of the creative industries, is classed as a creative worker. Now, I think that that has, you know, that's becoming a kind of expanded term. It's become almost meaningless. So, in a sense, the creative industries do have a, a kind of important economic impact. But that's not to say that museums and galleries really have that impact. And I think that that's been exaggerated to some extent. Isn't part of the issue here, though, that if the government's subsidising the arts to such an extent that it has to expect some kind of value for money? Well, I think this idea of value for money is something we should interrogate, really. You know, people can enjoy the arts um, and not get a tangible, direct benefit from it. But I still think that's value. I mean, obviously, people do enjoy the arts. I mean, you can look at visitor numbers to the Tate or to the National Gallery. They've gone up almost exponentially since they lifted um, admission fees. So I don't think there's any question that people get value from the arts in, in that sense. Um, and actually, as it goes, it's quite cheap. I mean, Britain probably spends less on its arts and cultural institutions than most other European countries. I think the, the real problem is that people working in arts institutions themselves lack a bit of confidence and that they mm. are the ones who are um, overly preoccupied with rationales and reasons for why we should fund the arts. And I think that's a deeper problem, really, the, the the kind of the, the cultural institutions that had once um, based their authority on knowledge and expertise and um, a kind of a sense that they were cultural guardians that those ideas have become very unfashionable now um, and 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 it's actually very difficult to say um, that you know we sh- you know we should have excellence in art we should have quality in art because those con- those concepts those words. Um, have become um, highly contested. You mean you mentioned there this idea of the great cultural guardians and, the, and these kind of big artistic institutions. Is part of the problem here that actually where the real um, innovation and exciting things are happening in the arts at the moment aren't happening there? 
they're happening away from all of these kind of centrally controlled big policy institutions. They're happening um, in people's bedrooms and they're happening on the internet and in places that aren't regulated and aren't controlled in that way. I think there is, I mean, there's certainly a, a lot of innovation creativity that goes on outside the, the, the formal system, the bureaucracy, if you like, of cultural policy. I think that cultural policy and cultural institutions do more than just innovate. I mean, they also preserve and protect um, cultural heritage. And I realise that makes me sound quite old fashioned, but I mean, that, that's quite a valuable thing. So that, you know, so that it is possible when the National Gallery um, bought the Madonna of the Paints, for instance, that it was um, a, 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 a painting that everybody could enjoy and appreciate. I mean, you, you could have a debate about whether it was actually worth the money or not. But the, the, the impulse behind it was that, you know, this is an important piece of art and, you know, we should be able to, you know, make it accessible to people. It shouldn't be in someone's private house. I think that's quite a, a noble impulse, actually. It's something mm-hmm. that, um, that, that the subsidised system has allowed, has enabled. Um, I, I think that the, um, the innovation, the creativity, in a way happens despite government policy. Um, if you look at the kinds of um, funding forms that you have to fill out in order to get a grant from the Arts Council, um, you know, you have to tick so many boxes. You have to say, well, you know, which vulnerable community are you helping? Which deprived area are you going to help regenerate? You know, how many, you know, ethnic communities are you going to support? You know, th- this is the, the sort of um, the, um, the, the, the burden, in a sense, placed upon the artists and the art organisation. And I would say that, um, the kind of the impulse behind instrumentalism in the arts actually probably um, kills innovation a little bit. It kind of um, kills the risk taking, the experimentation um, mm. amongst artists. I also, I mean, I do think that the, there are arts organisations and individuals funded by the Arts Council who, you know, still manage to produce really exciting and interesting work, um, and they're, and they're, they're not, um, you know, they're not going to let policy drive their creativity. And I think that's a a good thing. And um, I, I just think that the, the concern that I have is that socially we don't really um, have a way of valuing that. We don't um, articulate that as a, as a worthwhile mm. thing. And there isn't any social sanction for this idea that art can exist freely without burden, that it should have some autonomy. You've talked a lot about um, the relationship between identity and art um, and how we find identity through through art. People engage with art. There's always an element of engaging with it through your own particular experience, through your identity, through you as you are right now. Um, So if I look at a piece of art, I see something in it that might reflect on my own experiences, my own family circumstances and my own relationships. But I think there is another aspect to art, which is that it helps us transcend our particular experiences, that it lifts us out of ourselves, out of the everyday. And I think historically... That, that tension or that kind of that dualism has always been present to some extent in arts policy. This idea that art is both an affirmation of who you are, but it also changes or it transforms who you mm. are to some extent. It helps you transcend. What I would say today is that there is much more preoccupation with the identity side, with this idea that art should affirm you or should reflect back on you as an individual. I suppose the classic example of that would be Cool Britannia, the um, the government's kind of. Uh, early attempts to kind of bring together music and the arts um, and that kind of felt like um, very much a philosophy of using the arts to kind of create some sort of sense of national identity mm. is, is that a philosophy that still underpins the policy that we have today? Yeah I think that's I think that's still an important part of it that I mean Cool Britannia was an experiment that 
lots of people think fail, but I think we still live with a legacy of it to some extent, this idea that culture can cohere us or it can give us all a sense of meaning. Um, it can bring us together in a way that perhaps traditional politics can't. And I think, in a way, culture is being asked to do lots of the jobs that, that politics or ideologies in the past might have done. Um, I think even even more than that, though, culture is being asked to... Um, to affirm our individual identities, our very diverse and particular identities. So as well as creating a, a national narrative or a national identity, um, there is a tendency in culture to value diversity and diverse identities, and people are expected to engage with culture through their difference. Um, so now you have the kind of the development of black and ethnic funding or black and ethnic um, exhibitions or black history month you know this idea that people engage with culture through their ethnicity through their difference i mean i, I mentioned earlier the madonna of the pinks mm. um as a um you know as a recent acquisition at the national gallery and what was interesting that was was when the heritage lottery fund bought the the painting one of the rationales that they stated um for funding it was well, you know, single mothers might relate to this painting because it's a mother and a child, you know, and they were thinking, you know, this, this vulnerable group might, might relate to it. And I think what, what that revealed was this idea, this assumption that the only way in which people can engage with culture, with cultural objects, is through their own private identity. So I as a single mother or I as a black woman or I as a lesbian or I as a disabled person relate to this painting because it tells me something about myself. And that's partly true, but I think art is also more than that. And and perhaps we are, as a society, quite preoccupied with the identity side of things, um, to the the kind of detriment, perhaps, of the more what I would call the more universal aspect of of art, which is that it lifts us outside ourselves. You've talked there about a number of sort of celebrating diversity and celebrating the cultural differences, but is there an extent to which they actually emphasise difference and pull communities apart rather than? taking that role of bringing communities together and creating a national sense of what Britain is? I think there's the, the, actually the, the desire to create a national identity and the desire to celebrate different identities comes out of the same problem, which is that culture affirms identity per se. Um, and uh, the, 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 this is the, the kind of the thing that, that brings all these policies together in a way, and I would argue that diversity has become the overwhelmingly a defining principle in arts policy, because, um, as I said, you know, people aren't expected to um, to engage with culture um, as something apart from themselves, i.e., to become cultivated. I mean, this is the, the sort of the nineteenth-century idea that you would change as a result of engaging with culture. What we have today is much more of an essentialist notion of culture. I think that culture is something fixed or constant, something that needs to be stable. There's, a, you know, there's a real anxiety about culture being different. And when you have that, that fear of change in people's identities, then you have this desire to preserve differences, to affirm them, to recognise them. And I think, as you, as you said, that actually does reinforce difference. It actually exaggerates our differences too much. So, um, you know, you might have an exhibition that will celebrate um you know the black community for instance you know, this is a rather crude example but you know celebrate black history and and all the the black people apparently in that local community are supposed to come along and you know celebrate their identity and i think what that does is it sends a message to them which is this is your history this is your culture this is who you are and this is different to other people you know, you're not expected to engage with white culture mm. for instance because that's not your 
culture you know that would be eurocentric that would be an imposition on you you never you never hear the obverse of that which is that you know white people can't engage with black people's culture but the logic of it would be that mm. and in fact i've and i've argued this um in other areas in, in in race relations generally that we have this idea that almost a tribal idea that you know black or ethnic minority people have a community that they engage with primarily and then there's the rest of society and you know the reality for most people isn't like that you know we're much more three-dimensional than that you've used the word engagement an awful lot but right at the start we talked about this idea of um, commoditization of uh, of the arts and this idea that um, people's you know people the, the, the institutions are concerned with footfall and the number of people coming through the doors do we actually have um, a culture here that encourages engagement or are we driven by kind of a concern with consumption? I think it depends on how the word engagement is used. Often the word is used in, um, I think, in quite a banal way. When, when you, um, you know, when you set up the exhibition and you get kids to come along, you know, to a museum, um, there is a sort of assumption that actually kids can't engage because they won't be interested. So what we do is we, you know, we, we get all the objects out so they can touch them or we give them lots of buttons so they can interact with the display because there's a real sense that, you know, there's, there's no other way in which kids could possibly be engaged. And I think we, we actually, what we've, what we've done is we've um, redefined engagement as a kind of almost as a physical thing rather than as a mental thing. You know, you, you, we, we assume that people can't um, engage in any intellectual or any emotional sense with things that are outside of themselves. And I think that, that, that the repercussion of that is actually, as you said, a commoditization or a, consume, a consumer approach to culture, um, which is that um, culture is something that, um, you, you know, you, you go along to a marketplace, if you like, and you buy the kind of culture you already know that you mm. like. The, the model of consumption assumes that people won't try anything new. It assumes that people don't change. Um, and it assumes that everyone has their own favourite choice. It's a very subjective choice. You know, the, the reason that someone likes Shakespeare or someone likes Bach or, mm. um, you know, these cultural greats, you know, these things that are meant to be, um, you know, important important cultural icons, actually the only reason that you would fund them is because somebody happens to like them. Mm. You know, everything becomes reposed as a kind of... Um, a consumer choice rather than because it actually has a social value. Who should be defining who those cultural icons are? I wouldn't want to go back to the age of deference where we only study writers or only study painters because a small elite tells us to. And I think that was often the case, mm. um, if, we're, if we're being honest. But at the same time, I think that people with authority, with expertise, with knowledge about culture can make informed decisions that can actually be of use and of value to other people. So, for instance, I don't know a huge amount about classical music, I have to admit. I feel like it's a big deficiency in my, my knowledge and my brain. But I trust the fact that people who know a lot about music, who understand the rules of music, the different um, kind of component parts, the language of music, I trust their judgment to some extent that they have an idea of what might be of good quality, what might be original or innovative, because they understand what musicians are trying to do. That doesn't mean that they entirely detain my taste, but I, you know, I value their opinion, and I think their opinion is valuable because it's got expertise in it. And I think that, in a way, our society needs to develop a new relationship with art. We have to have a way in which we can value expertise and authority, and yet still have a public 
um, a public debate, in a sense, about why we value particular people. I think there should be some accountability to the public. I think if, you know, if... Um, the Royal College of Music, for instance, has a program about um, has a program of, of classical music or classical greats. I think it's good that they try and educate their public and they try and teach people why you know why Bach was a, a master or why Beethoven was so innovative. And and I think that's important that the public should be engaged with that, and rather than assuming that they should be told. But I still think that 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 that, that expertise and authority is very important. One of the problems I think that's happened today, which I think is a very anti-democratic trend, is that people in authority who actually know something about culture are increasingly embarrassed about telling us what they think. You know, they're increasingly embarrassed about saying, well, actually, I think Shakespeare is fantastic because... And I think this is a real um, absolving of responsibility. You know, they do have a responsibility, actually, to spread this knowledge. Um, and I think it's a, it's actually quite indulgent for institutions to pretend that what they have is not that special. Um, I think it's a disservice to the public. Mm. I suppose in, in an age where boundaries are sort of falling around us and in, you know the internationalisation of media, the internationalisation of, of information and, and the exchange of ideas, uh, is it actually possible to set these kind of policies at a national level? I think, it, I think it's quite difficult to, um, to try and ignore the globalisation of culture. I don't think it would be a healthy thing. In fact, in some ways, the visual arts sector in Britain has been ahead of the game here because the visual arts um, are much more internationalised probably than, than most other sectors. There's a lot more movement of individual artists in, in different areas. Mm. I think you have the same in architecture to some extent and, and music where you have people who are not just famous in their own country but are respected worldwide. Um, and I think in, in some ways the, the, the Arts Council has really develop that side of its work extremely well. They've worked very well with other institutions and other countries. Mm. And things like the internet can only be a good thing for the arts. They can only, um, in a way, give people greater access. So now you have the development of podcasts, of online exhibitions. You know, these are, these I think, are really wonderful things. But with that needs to come, I think, a sustained commitment to education. Now, how do you make sense of all the culture that's out there? How can you make decisions about what's good or bad? And I think we need to have um, a, a kind of a, a public space, really, where you can have those discussions, where you can say why you know this particular work of art should be funded or supported. Um, and and I, I don't want to leave it to the marketplace, as it were, and just let people get on with it. I think that... Um, that you know, it would be really helpful and really great if we could have cultural conversations. But do we have the media at the moment that's going to allow us to have those kind of discussions? Um, there's a lot of criticism that you know television is about as dumbed down as it can be. Um, is there the capacity to do that? I think technically there is. Um, I don't know if there's a will. But um, I mean, what was what was interesting when Channel Five was first launched? Everyone assumed it would be the most dumbed down, the most trashy. And in fact, Channel Five has surprised everyone by putting on hour-long documentaries about art. I mean, they've had you know critics talking about their favourite piece of art or their favourite exhibition, which have been extremely popular. And I think there is an appetite. You know, there is more leisure time. Frankly, most people have mm. much more time to indulge themselves and to learn. And you know, there is a there is a kind of a thirst for knowledge. I think so. I think in in some ways television is probably, and I've always thought it's the most democratic medium in a sense, because it can you know it can go right into people's homes and it can show them the unfamiliar in a very accessible way. 
um, I do think probably TV producers are the the most kind of philistine sometimes when it comes to to art, and and not just because they don't like art themselves. I think probably lots of TV producers have had good art educations in their own in their own lives. What they do have is a, I think, a real um, underestimation of the public. I was going to say, do you think the decision makers underestimate? people's interest in in the arts and their capacity to engage with them yeah and there's a, there's a um a, an absolute contempt i think sometimes about the public when I mean, you hear um the kind of the producers of big brother um endemol the way that they justify big brother as a kind of you know this is what the public want as it happens i don't i mean i don't think big brother is the biggest evil in the world I and mean, i can understand why people enjoy it but the the kind of the implicit argument about big brother was that you know what people want is this that what they don't want is you know the South Bank show or, um, you know, um, uh, Simon Sharma on art. You know, these are the things that the public just don't want foisted upon them. And I think that there was there was something actually, even though I, you know, think Reith was a um, an elitist and he was quite patronising, I think there was something in the impulse, which was that let's give the public something that they don't know they'll like just yet. They might enjoy it. They might enjoy the things that we enjoy, that we've had the privilege of knowing. And um, in a, in that sense, I, I think I'm an unashamed elitist. But then I feel like I can be because I'm in this, in a sense, kind of culturally ignorant as well. And and I recognise what I would be missing out on mm. if I hadn't had the the look of very good teachers. Do you think we're in a dangerous time or an opportunistic time? All times have opportunities and problems, <laughs> and I, I suppose it depends on how you look at them. I think that even though lots of the things that I write sound pessimistic and they sound like they're complaints about the system. In fact, the reason that I write those things is because I believe that there is a tremendous appetite out there. And I meet artists and I meet people working in arts policy who have a much greater sense of, you know, the ambition they could have. And and I think that, you know, in a way that the problems are not, you know, government constraints or external demands placed upon us. I think part of the, the challenge is to change the way that we look at things and, and in our own mind. I think... You know, probably the greatest thing that the art sector can do now is to to get a bit more confidence about what it does, and to sell that to the public and say, you know, actually, uh, you know, to have a, an estimate an, a higher estimation of what the public wants. Uh, and I think that you know, that in that sense, that you know, we we have much more control over the policies and the practice hmm. than we realise. So you know, I, I suppose in some ways I'm an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> Manira, thank you very much. Thank you.